From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Priests vow to be celibate. We now know a lay Catholic group in Denver is surveilling them to make sure they keep that vow. A Washington Post investigation uncovered the campaign, which pays particular attention to activity on gay hookup apps. We'll explore the larger privacy implications. Then, it's got to be one of the strangest rituals in Colorado. Every two weeks, I have to go down to Denver to the distributor and pick up the dry ice. And it's usually 900 to 1,200 pounds, and that's all year long. That ice is carted to a tough shed in Nederland, where there's a frozen dead guy. Today, why the body may be moved. Plus, we spring forward into the debate about daylight saving time. And more highlights from our recent Denver Mayoral Forum. It's time to part ways with your beloved car, but you want it to go somewhere it'll truly be appreciated. So donate it to CPR. Instead of sitting and gathering dust, your tax-deductible car donation will fuel Colorado Public Radio. You love your old car. Now let it bring you the programs you love. It's so easy and convenient to donate your car at CPR.org support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. A Washington Post investigation finds a lay Catholic group in Colorado has monitored priests who use dating and hookup apps, predominantly ones geared towards same-sex relationships. This group then turned the findings over to bishops nationwide. Priests take a vow of celibacy, and the church's official position is that gay sex is a sin. WAPO's report raises broader privacy questions as well that affect all our lives. Technology reporter Heather Kelly is on the line. Hi, Heather. Hello. So is Michelle Borstein, who covers religion for the paper. Hello, Michelle. Hello. The intersection here between tech and religion fascinates me. Whose beat did this start on? Heather on tech, Michelle on faith? Uh, This came initially through through my reporting and then Heather joined me. Okay, so this uh, started as uh, a faith question, I guess that means, and the Denver-based group that went digging for this information on priests is called Catholic Laity and Clergy for Renewal. Uh, Heather, give us a synopsis of what they're doing and how they were doing it. I'm gonna let Michelle answer that. I'm just the nerdy tech person here. Okay. She is our religion <laughs> expert. Um, well, Heather can jump in at any time. So the, the reporting began a couple of years ago when a Catholic news site um, public, said it was using data from an unknown source, from a source that wasn't, wasn't included in the reporting, to name a high-ranking priest who was apparently a regular um, user of, of Grindr, the, the um, dating and hookup app that gay men use. So that got us interested in where was the money coming from for this project and what is happening to this data. Uh, and it turned out that there was a group of, there's a group of wealthy conservative Catholics in the Denver area, which is a very um, like healthy, busy uh, Catholic population in the Denver area. Um, and they, that they were investing millions of dollars in purchasing data from not just Grindr, but other other dating and hookup apps, mostly 
for um, aimed at gay men, but some that did include heterosexual people as well. And trying to figure out what they could do with the data, how they could use the data to identify people who were violating their celibacy vows and that sort of thing. And they wound up taking it to more than a dozen, um, at least a dozen bishops around the country who were torn about what to do with the data. So it was it, it was it was largely a very, very secret effort. So we were glad to bring these questions to to people. And when you followed the money, tell us more about where it led you. Well, it, it, again, there, there was a group of philanthropists, they're business people in the Denver area. Um, John Martin, Tim Reichert, Mark Bowman, and others had donated to this project, this nonprofit uh, that you mentioned. And the primary project of this nonprofit was to to use this data, uh, in their words, to help the church, to help you know purify the church, help bishops figure out, use data to try to um, figure out what you know what their seminarians and priests were up to. Um, one of the things that we've you know not entirely answered, and I think this is a good question for the public in general, is like what does it take to get this kind of data about people, not just on uh, dating apps, but on all kinds of uh, things that you have on your on your phone. What, how expensive is it? In this case, they spent at least $4 million over a few years. Um, we don't know exactly how they got the data, if somebody initially presented them a pool of data and then they bought more or if they bought all of it to begin with. But Heather can talk a little bit more about, about that, which is, you know, how how expensive is it to buy data? Do you have to be a multimillionaire or can you get data for a lot less that can be impactful to people's privacy? Yeah, I mean, th that speaks to the broader issues here. So in your story, you quote Justin Sherman from Duke University's Public Policy School. He focuses on data privacy. And he told you that police departments have bought data about citizens instead of seeking a warrant. Um, he mentioned domestic abusers who've accessed data about their victims and anti-abortion activists who've used data to identify people who visit clinics. So, yeah, speak to this idea of how much this costs and how available it is. I can grab that one. So uh, this data has been out for years. It's just it's just a really generic advertising data. It's all the things you agree to when you sign up for a new app and you hit agree after definitely not reading all thousand words. And the problem is the whole industry was sort of based on this honor system of, you know, we're never going to give it to people who will do bad things. It doesn't include your name. And so the lie has been around for a while that you couldn't re-identify people without their name. And this just really shows that something very theoretical that we've been warned about um, by these experts for years is actually possible. If you have enough information about a person, even if you don't have your name, you can figure out who they are. And there's an entire industry of ad brokers and ad exchanges and these apps that have been collecting this information for many years. And for the right price, what we've seen is, yeah, it's possible. You can buy it. You can hire people. I think some of this money probably went to hiring the right people to who knew how to look at it, who knew how to figure out which of these little dots on a map belonged to a priest. And one thing they did is they they looked at these sort of addresses and they said, OK, who sleeps here at night? Because wow. we know only priests live here. And so they looked for a certain number of nights in a row and said, oh, this person slept here. They must be a priest. Where else did they go? Did they go to a second address? Was it a family member? Was it a gay bar? And that's how they identified them. 
And then you say that they turned this information over to bishops across the country. So perhaps this is a question for you, Michelle. Do we know if the bishops took any action based on that information? Most of what uh, has happened, we were not able to learn because there was a lot of secrecy. Bishops, you know, who, who have received this information didn't want to talk to us. We know through some of our reporting that some people were confronted, but they don't know what in what way, you know, the, their bishops got information about them. Um, they might have just said, you know, we, we have information about misbehavior or we have questions about celibacy or something un, unspecific. Um, I think the, the bishops and the people involved in the project had different views about how to use it with some people suggesting um, to just make the information public and out priests and do, you know, feed, feed uh, leaks to Catholic media about people. And then others saying, let's just try to, you know, use this information to learn about people or possibly to bring the, the information to their attention. So um, there's a lot that, yet that we don't know about the impact of this information. To this group, Catholic Lady and Clergy for Renewal, again based in Colorado, um, you also reached out to the group's president, Jade Hendricks. Uh, Hendricks mm -hmm. had at one point agreed to speak with you, but reneged, uh, instead penning an article for First Things, a religious journal. What case did he lay out? Um, so... We did reach out to all of the people, the, the trustees of the group who I mentioned. Um, and so and then they hired a, um, a PR firm. So I, they also uh, just didn't return our calls. They Mr. Hendricks w was supposed to reach out to us and then we didn't hear from him. And he, he published this article, as you mentioned. And, and in the piece, he raised something that we didn't see reflected in any of our reporting, which is he said, we do other things. The group does does other things um, and that this was a, a, a worthy project. It's a way of using data research to help priests and to help bishops help priests. Um, yeah, so that that's the extent of what we know is that, um, you know, and, and uh, our reporting showed that as well, that they they think this is the, for the good of the church. Um, I would say our reporting was not as focused on the priests as much as it was sort of helping the priests as much as it was um, keeping these kind of people from from spiritual leadership positions in the church and finding out about them. It wasn't as fo our reporting didn't suggest that there was as much focus on helping the priests as much as it was about, um, you know, keeping out people like this and trying to find ways to possibly get rid of people like this. Um, but that's not Mr. Henrik's article was focused on protecting the church's name and helping bishops help their priests. Meanwhile, you quote a member of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops who said, revealing information that harms a person's reputation without an objectively valid reason, even if it's true, is considered a sin. Do you want to expound on, on that view for us, which uh, obviously is at odds with what Catholic laity and clergy for renewal is doing. Well, I think, I mean, I think the big picture is that Catholic teaching is complex and, and has, you know, different values, not necessarily conflicting, but I mean, it's a, it's a, it's an ancient complicated system of morals and laws. So, I mean, there's, there's issues around privacy and the rights of priests, the right of people to their name, to their good name. 
um, the rights of people to know what kind of information is being used in a case against them. And what are you prioritizing? I mean, I think this group and people connected to this group that came up in our reporting really are, you know, see this issue around like LGBTQ rights and gender diversity as like an existential issue. It's a top priority. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things that kind of got missed in this is, you know, how the different ways people use these apps, um, not to, you know, obviously Catholics should, you know, have their own views about, you know, what, what, what they think about, you know, a priest uh, using an app like this or not, but there's nothing in law that, that speaks to, to specifically the issue of social media use. Um, and people having the app on their phone does not does not prove what they did with that app. It doesn't mm. prove that they spoke to anybody. It doesn't prove that they met with anybody and it doesn't address the core Catholic issue of, you know, their conscience and what was in their heart and their intention and how they dealt with uh, this problem when it was brought to their attention by their bishop, et cetera. So I think it's more complicated than that. But um, but also there are, you know, it's these, it's these deep issues about um, what constitutes sinful sex and, uh, it's there, there are different views among moral theologians about what constitutes sex is, is having an app on the phone akin to having sex is watching somebody, you know, have sex or, you know, whatever, something, all those things are sort of unclear in, in, uh, in moral theology and there's different opinions about uh, it. It makes me wonder if is browsing a sin uh, is another question you might frame it as. You're listening to yeah. Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about this story in the Washington Post uh, that is based in Denver. Headlined, Catholic groups spent millions on app data that tracked gay priests. And I, I do want to talk about the larger implications here. We've hit on some of that. But uh, Heather Kelly, how does this situation compare to some of the other data reporting that you do? So what's interesting about this is it's our first concrete proven example of a private group doing this, of a private group being able to buy data and reverse engineer and figure out who the people are. Uh, like you mentioned earlier, there are examples of law enforcement doing this. Uh, the FBI just a week ago admitted to having done it in the past. And what that lets law enforcement do is get the kind of information they would normally need a warrant for. Um, but of course, the kicker there is it's much easier just to purchase it on the open market. It right. is not hidden information. Uh, and so it's, you know, it's always it's always been a concern. And now that we've seen it's possible, there's the hope that the industry, which is completely unregulated, there are no federal laws prohibiting it. This you might think that sounds illegal. That is, in fact, not illegal at all. Um, so it's something that that advocates have been calling for for a long time is any kind of federal privacy law that would address this, that would set up rules that would you know, actually bring some knowledge to the space instead of um, just hoping that the worst doesn't happen. And now that we've seen it once, I'm pretty sure we, we might see it again. You know, other examples could be, you know, states where abortion is illegal, interested private groups could try and buy data to find out what women are, you know, going to a Planned Parenthood or another place. Well, thanks to both of you for your time and your reporting. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. We heard from the Washington Post's Michelle Borstein, who covers religion, and Heather Kelly, who covers tech. Again, their story is headlined, Catholic groups spent millions on app data that tracked gay priests. After a break, what can be done right away to help people experiencing homelessness get a roof over their heads? Some of the candidates for Denver mayor take up that issue. We'll listen 
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The newest podcast from Colorado Public Radio called Terra Firma brings you the sounds of nature with reflections from Colorado-born writer C. Marie Furman. I hope that you find Terra Firma a place where you're not being pulled away, but pulled to a few minutes to connect to a story, to a landscape, and to yourself. Find Terra Firma wherever you get your podcasts. Supported by Credit Union of Colorado. Ballots for the Denver election hit the mail today. Voters will decide three ballot issues, pick a city council, and of course, a new mayor. As the state's capital city, the mayor has the power to influence issues well beyond city and county limits. Seven of the mayoral candidates took part in a forum hosted by our sister publication, Denverite, in conjunction with nonprofits focused on underserved communities. CPR's Nathan Heffel and May Ortega moderated. Candidates had a fixed amount of time to answer and two chances to rebut. Here is an excerpt. Black and brown people are overrepresented in the city's homeless population. One of the most common complaints heard from the unhoused is that shelters are unsafe, so camping on the streets is really their only option. At the same time, advocates say encampment sweeps are inhumane and are not a benefit for those seeking outreach services. Starting with Kelly Bruff, what would you do immediately to ensure the unhoused feel safe and to help get people off the streets? Um, My priority would be to change what we do today. Today, people who have nowhere to go camp throughout our city. Uh, We move those encampments along when they pose public health or public safety issues, uh, and they move down the block to the next neighborhood, down the street, all to do it again a few weeks later. It's inhumane, ineffective. Instead, I would immediately sanction outdoor safe sites so we would have an alternative that's safer to get people to right away while we build the shelter and housing we need long-term. I wouldn't do it alone. I'd work with people in the region. Five sitting mayors have endorsed my homeless plan to work together using data and focusing on prevention so we can actually get ahead of this challenge. Thank you. We have a rebuttal over here. Chris Hansen. All right, yeah, I think this is such a critical question, so I wanted to use one of my rebuttals. Um, Kelly, my question is for you. You know, in the last six weeks, you've changed your position on this four times. You started on February 21st talking to Kyle Clark. You said you're gonna arrest people. On February 20th, you said sweeps don't work to Tony Kovaleski on Channel 7. On February 16th, you said you'll continue the sweeps when you're talking to Channel 9 at our debate. And on January 11th, you had a press conference where you said definitively, I quote, sweeps will not continue. And that was on Channel 9. So what is your position? You have a a 30-second rebuttal there. Uh, I have been consistent. Sweeps don't work. I will move people to safer locations. That's correct. The question I got on Channel 9 was, um, so when you talk to service providers, they'll tell you 90% of people will move. They want to stay in community. They want to be someplace safer. They want to be with their partners and their pets, and they'll move. The question I got was, what do you do with the few people who won't go? And my answer was, I will not leave people to fend for themselves on our streets. I will arrest people to get them to a safer location and get them so they're not living. By the way, 173 people died on our streets unhoused. Let's continue on with the uh, questions uh, from our next. Debbie Ortega. Will you repeat the question, please? Sure. 
Black and brown people are overrepresented in the city's homeless population. One of the most common complaints heard from the unhoused is that shelters are unsafe, so camping on the streets is their only option. At the same time, advocates say encampment sweeps are inhumane and are not a benefit for those seeking outreach services. Uh, what would you do immediately to ensure the unhoused feel safe and to help get people off the streets? So as mayor, the first thing I would do is be working with our neighboring jurisdictions. I think you all have heard that Arapahoe County has 250 beds on the Ridgeview site. The state has funded those. Um, I wanna get those open as soon as possible because a good number of people on our streets have been affected by these lethal drugs that are on our streets. If you have not read stories written by Sam Quinones about the impact these drugs are having across the United States, I challenge you to take the time to read his, his writings. Um, he lived in Mexico, he's traveled across the country, and I think we need to address that. Um, the other thing I would do is be working to do things like single room occupancy housing in our city. That is a model that works for people who have, when we get them into housing, they feel very isolated. So they need a model that has that community environment where we're not, it's not as costly to build because you don't have a kitchen in every single unit. You have a community environment where they share their meals, and this is never enough time to cover and all the things time. we want to say. Thank you. <laughs> Leslie Harrod. I will not incarcerate people simply because they are homeless. Uh, they want you to believe that this is a compassionate response to people living on the streets. It is not. I mean, clearly, again, going back to equity, you are talking about incarcerating people because the system continues to fail them, and we refuse to do what is right, which is provide housing, resources, and services, and maybe even help, right? Personalized help. It costs $200 to $500 a day to house someone in Denver jails. Denver jail does not want to be an internment camp for the unhoused population. How about instead we get people housing? If we are willing to spend that much money to incarcerate people in Denver jail, what are we missing? What are we missing? We're missing the fact that the solution is right in front of our faces, which is provide that housing. Yes, use that public land that we've talked about to create transitional and social housing and long-term stable housing. That's what we need to do in the city. That is a truly compassionate response. But make no mistake, they want to incarcerate people on the streets now, which means building new jails, new prisons, and us taxpayers and footing time. that cost. Thank you. Thank you. Mike Johnson. Thank you. Um, Yes, how do you address homelessness? You build safe, dignified, stable housing for people to be able to live in. This is the biggest challenge we're facing. <clears throat> and you have to do it in a way that allows us to do that quickly. That's why what I have proposed is what we would, and we know works, because community leaders like the Colorado Village Collaborative and Kawa Coalition for the Homeless have done this. Uh, we would build micro-communities where you have either 40 to 50 tiny homes where people have safe, dignified, stable living. You have all the wraparound services people need on those sites. You have mental health support, you have addiction treatment, you have workforce training, you have long-term term housing placement, and most importantly, you actually respect the sense of community that exists among folks who are unhoused. If you are living in a community of folks in an encampment, that is the last major source of community you may have left. And so to come to one individual and try to move them to one unit 10 miles across town is not going to be successful. What is successful is to allow those communities to move as communities to places that are safe, that are stable, that are dignified, and that provide the services they would need. This is a solvable problem. We can do it with the right combination of housing uh, and services and supports, and that's what I would do as mayor. Thank you. Chris Hansen. All right. Thank you. I, I agree, Mike. This is a solvable problem. I think that's exactly the kind of optimism we have to approach this with. 
And what I've really tried to communicate with the voters is first, we've got to audit the spending we're doing right now. It's $250 million this year. That is up 10X over where it was just a few years ago. But here's the bad news. We are about to hit a fiscal cliff. I was, had a chance to be with HLC today, the Homeless Leadership Council, all the nonprofits, major nonprofits in the room. We are gonna have massive funding shortages when the federal money runs out in 25 and 26. And the state investments, which I think are so important that I help lead as a part of the budget committee, are not gonna be there uh, in the current form. We've got a serious fiscal cliff in front of us. We've got to be very smart about how we're spending our money right now. We do have state investments, though, in new treatment capacity, and that's great, because we need that so desperately. The Ridgeview facility, I'm glad you mentioned that. The other one is a $50 million grant program that I helped create last year to help nonprofits accelerate their expansion of capacity so we get the people the services they need to get recovered, get sober, get clean, and have a chance to get back on their feet. Thank you. Paul May Spearman? Could you re-ask the question? Sure. Black and brown people are overrepresented in the city's homeless population. One of the most common complaints heard from the unhoused is that shelters are unsafe, so camping on the streets is their only option. At the same time, advocates say encampment sweeps are inhumane and are not a benefit for those seeking outreach services. What would you do immediately to ensure the unhoused feel safe and to help get people off the streets? I think we've got to have an incredibly honest, pragmatic, conversation on this topic, and I, quite frankly, I don't think we're, we're, we're doing it. There are two types of people that we see right now. There are people who the system is failing, and we've got to have more innovation and more services. I've met with HLC as well. We've got to think about those organizations not just as places for shelter, but as places where people actually get back into a situation where they can have a job and have access to housing. But we've also got to acknowledge an incredibly dark truth that because we are not enforcing our laws, we have become a magnet for people who want to be chronically homeless. With all due respect, the sweeps do work. Look at Civic Center Park when we were not conducting the sweeps. That was not safe for anyone. We have got to enforce our laws if we want to start borderline, or putting ourselves on a path to safety. The least safe thing we can do is allow encampments to continue to exist. The least, the least safe thing that we can do is to assume that people should just go into shelters without a path to getting and out of time. them. Thank you. Thank you. Lisa Calderon. So once again, as a service provider who's actually done this work for 20 years on the streets uh, with victims of domestic violence and with folks coming out of jail, um, the, the thread of equity has been inconsistent even in this conversation. So having, talking about racial equity in housing and then arresting people, like these are the same people. So you can't separate it out Kelly has flip-flopped. I don't understand what her plan means. So when she talks about, I don't support the sweeps, but I will arrest people, you know, the sweeps, the, the mechanism for, uh, she doesn't support the sweeps, but the mechanism for supporting the camping ban is arrest, is, a, is sweeps, is ticketing people. We have Mike and Chris who support the camping ban, but are careful to not talk about arrest. At least Kwame is honest. He wants to sweep people and, <laughs> and arrest people. And so, yes, we have to have that hard conversation um, because people are being disingenuous about equity. You and gotta be time. consistent. That is an excerpt of the People's Forum, produced by Denverite and moderated by CPR's Nathan Heffel and May Ortega. Watch the entire debate at CPR.org mayor and read about all the candidates and the issues in Denverite's voter guide at Denverite.com.
Colorado.com. And Colorado Matters continues into this next half hour as we shed some light on daylight saving time. I'm Ryan Warner here with CPR News and KRCC. Spring is coming to Colorado and one sign, the return of the sandhill crane. A big gray bird with a crimson colored crown. The sandhill crane can be four feet tall with a six foot wingspan. And every March, the southern Colorado town of Monta Vista celebrates the sandhill crane as one massive flock makes a stopover on its way north for the summer. It's a sight some call one of North America's greatest wildlife phenomena. Tens of thousands of cranes descending on the San Luis Valley. And in the fields, some begin an elaborate courtship dance. Huge wings spread, heads bobbing, and all the while making a sound almost unlike any other herald of springtime. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio with the support of Coble and Company. We did it. We sprung forward. But the time change can be rough. I certainly felt that this morning. So why do we keep doing this? Asks Alan Hansen of Golden. I am wondering where the state bill concerning daylight savings time stands. The quick answer, last year the state passed a law that makes daylight saving time in Colorado permanent. But it's not quite that straightforward. Psychologist Lisa Meltzer is with National Jewish Health. The federal government has to pass a law that allows states to make choice whether they can stay on permanent standard time or permanent daylight time. And Colorado voted to do it, but only if a certain number of states surrounding Colorado also agree to do it. Enough of those nearby states have agreed. As for the federal government, the congressional bill to allow for permanent daylight saving time passed the U.S. Senate. Now the House must approve, then of course the president. States can already choose to stay on standard time if they want. CPR's Andrea Dukakis spoke with Lisa Meltzer to get more perspective on the twice-a-year time change. I want to start with the history of all of this. Alan Hansen, who emailed us with that question, says she remembers a time when there was no daylight saving time, and then she remembers when things changed. I am of an age where I remember when we didn't change the clocks back, and summer was so much better. Much better is obviously her view. I have to say I kind of like it when we switch to lighter evenings. We'll talk about the arguments on the different sides of this in a bit. But the decision to move to daylight saving time for part of the year and remain on standard time for the rest was back in 1966. Can you tell us what prompted that? So daylight saving time was first implemented during World War I, and it was a measure to add more daylight hours to conserve energy. And so after that point in time, everyone locally could decide, or states or local jurisdictions could decide if or when to observe daylight saving time. In 1966, it became a uniform time act. So it became everybody would observe daylight saving time for a certain period of the year. Now, in 1974, there was a decision to switch to permanent daylight saving time. It was a trial effort that was going to last for two years, but after seven months, they ended the trial because there were so many complaints of children going to school in the dark, 
There were accidents with children getting hit, motor vehicle crashes, and nobody liked starting their workday in pitch black. So it was repealed less than a year after it was implemented. So I guess there are three options to this equation. You could have permanent daylight saving time, which Colorado appears to be moving toward, then going to permanent standard time. That's allowed by federal law, and two states, Hawaii and Arizona, have done that. And then what Colorado does currently, which is switch back and forth, you've looked at the body of research on this. What does it find? So the body of research clearly shows that permanent standard time is best for our health. Switching back and forth is problematic because in the spring, when we move forward an hour, we're making our day shorter for that short period of time. And in the week after we go on to daylight saving time, there is an increase in heart attacks, motor vehicle crashes, workplace accidents, and it takes some people up to a couple of weeks to adjust to the new time. In the fall, everybody likes falling back an hour because we make our day longer by an hour, and that only takes about two or three days to adjust. So think about springtime is like traveling east one or two hours, and in the fall, it's like traveling west. It's easier to make our day longer. But the reason why permanent standard time is better for our health is that our internal clocks are regulated by light and dark. And when it gets dark in the evening, that cues our body to produce melatonin, which prepares our body for sleep. So when melatonin is released in the evening, it cools off our core body temperature and it changes other body functions to prepare us for sleep. And then in the morning, bright sunlight goes through our eyes and tells our brain to stop making melatonin and wake up. So we need light in the morning to help us wake up and get our days started. When we're on daylight saving time, our days are longer. And what we know is with increased light in the evenings, as much as we all enjoy having those evening light hours, people go to bed later. But yet our social clocks, which are work schedules and school schedules, those don't change. So even if we go to bed later, we still have to wake up at the same time to start our day. And so ultimately on daylight saving time, people end up getting less sleep. And so that's problematic because we know that the amount of sleep we get is directly related to our physical health, our mental health, every aspect of our health and well-being. People like having light in the afternoons, and that's why permanent daylight saving time is attractive. But what people don't realize is that in the winter, this means very dark mornings. So in November, if we were on permanent daylight saving time, the sun would not rise until between 7.30 and 8 a.m., In January, the sun would not rise until between 8.09 and 8.21 a.m. And that means we're all waking up and commuting in the dark. And this is really hard because, again, we're not going to sleep early enough and we're having a hard time waking up in the morning. And so the long-term consequences of this are not good. The research I have done a lot of is looking at the impact of changing school start times. And we know that by delaying middle and high school start times, those kids are able to not only get more sleep, but they're able to wake up and go to school when it's light out. And in our focus groups, this is what kids talked about as their favorite aspect of having healthy start times, not only getting more sleep, but going to school when it's light out. And if we were to go on a permanent daylight saving time, all of these efforts that have been done and all of this progress that's been made is basically going to get wiped out because our social clocks 
will not adjust. Schools will not start later and work will not start later. Along those lines, our Colorado Wonders questioner, Alan Hansen, said this about the time pre-1966 when there was permanent standard time and then after the change. She's obviously a mother and now she's a grandmother and notices the same issues. Kids were allowed to go out and play until it gets dusk, about 7.30. You'd get them in, get them ready for bed. They're in bed by 8, 8.30. And their sleep cycle was not interrupted. Now it's by the clock, and it's if you get them in by 9, maybe you're lucky to get them to bed by 10. And the circadian rhythms were totally disrupted. Then the, the switching back and forth is so bad on your system. So in your mind... What's worse, the switching back and forth or the idea of permanent daylight saving time? Permanent daylight saving time, without a doubt. The switching back and forth is not great, but people do adjust. Again, they'll get less sleep in the summer, and we do actually see a lot of kids and grownups get less sleep, again, because they're staying up later. But the switching back and forth, our bodies can adjust to it because we force them onto these new schedules. Permanent daylight saving time, however, forces us onto an irregular schedule all year. And especially in the winter time, again, we're fighting against our natural biological rhythms because the light-dark cycle is not when our bodies should be naturally going to bed and waking up. What about places like Scandinavia and Alaska, where it's very dark in the wintertime and light almost all day and night in the summertime? So in places like that, the societies and the cultures have adapted to that. And so they create home environments that have artificial darkness in the summertime and artificial light in the wintertime to help them adjust. And those regions are somewhat of the extremes. So the majority of people are not dealing with that severe of a circumstance, but people can adapt. Um, But even within time zones, we can see differences. So people on the far east side of a time zone are going to have a different clock than people on the far west side of a time zone. And so there's a lot of variability in terms of how light and dark impact people's lives. But having circadian clock, our internal clock, match as closely to the rhythm of the sun and the darkness um, is the best option. One argument I've heard for permanent daylight saving time is that research finds the crime rates are lower when it's lighter at the end of the day. What's your view on that? A lot of the research that suggests longer days is better for us is confounded by time of year. So in the summertime, people say daylight saving time is better because we exercise more. We can walk more at night. But the thing is, is In the summer, it's warmer. And so after work, we're more inclined to go outside as opposed to in February if it's snowing out, right? And I think crime has a similar type of effect in terms of the weather role and the time of year role. Um, I think the research looks at it, but again, the biological outcomes and the health outcomes are so much more significant. And just out of curiosity, how is standard time determined? How does that work? So standard time matches most closely with the sun time. So in the summer, 
the sun reaches its peak, we would think it's at noon, but it's actually at one o'clock, right? And so there's this difference in terms of where the sun peaks and sets as opposed to what our clock times say. So time zones, I think, are mostly set to try and capture and match up the clock times with the sun times. Some places in the world like China, where it's one large time zone, again, they find very significant differences in sleep and health outcomes on one side of this large time zone than on the other, because the actual times don't match up with the sunrise, the sunset, and the midday point. How common is it for countries around the world to have this switch back and forth? It is quite common in North America, in Europe, Australia, and a few other places in the world. But again, every major medical and research society, including American Academy of Sleep Medicine, Sleep Research Society, strongly recommend permanent standard time for the health and well-being of all of these societies, no matter where in the world the time changes are happening. Lisa, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. My colleague Andrea Dukakis speaking with psychologist Lisa Meltzer of National Jewish Health. When we come back, we're going to answer another Colorado Wonders question about a frozen dead guy. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Marty Jewell, and I've donated several cars to CPR. I donated my cars because, first of all, it was too much of a hassle to try and sell one. And I found the process of donating so much easier. Just fill out some paperwork online and wait for the tow truck. That was it. Donating my cars is the way I support the station. Donate your car at CPR.org. There's a festival planned in Estes Park this weekend with an unusual name. It's Frozen Dead Guy Days, and it's held in honor of a guy who's been, well, frozen for more than 30 years. Here's his grandson. My name is Trygve Babge, and those of you who have lived in uh, Colorado for quite some time would remember me as the person who froze my grandfather, Bredo Mostel, and have him stored up in Netherlands. Obviously, there's more to this story, and longtime Coloradans may wonder why the festival has moved, even though the body hasn't. My colleague Michelle Fulcher is here to tell us about it. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Ryan. It feels like we're talking about characters in a movie here. Uh, tell us more about Trigva and his grandfather, Bredo. Well, Trigva lived in Boulder in the 1980s and early 1990s. He grew up in Norway, where he saw a lot of his grandfather. Well, he was kind. I never saw him angry. I never saw him uh, unjust, you know. He was, of course, intelligent, and he got a scholarship to go to school and became a landscape architect. So Bredo died in Norway in 1989. Trigva flew home from Boulder right away and persuaded his family to freeze Bredo's body. It was transported to an institute in California. That didn't work out, so Trigva moved his grandfather to a spot outside of Nederland in 1993. And where is Trigva these days? So Trigva was living in Boulder. He was on a visa and ultimately was deported in 1994. He's in Norway now. Yes, he is. I spoke to him in Oslo. What is Trigva's plan here? I mean, why is he keeping his grandpa's body frozen? Well, he figures that he can't restore his grandfather completely. Bredo's not going to be walking around talking to people. Don't picture Frankenstein's monster here. (laughs) No. 
When the science advances, Trigva hopes that scientists can create his grandfather's younger genetic twin. You know, the science here is in a lot of dispute. And even Trigva admits that Grandpa has not been stored under the optimal conditions. Of course, he wasn't frozen under ideal circumstances compared to what we will be able to do 100 years from now. No, but you have to start where you are, and you have to improve from there, step by step. We live in a real world, not in a fantasy world. What are the conditions like? So I talked to one of the caretakers who's been helping keep Bredo sustained. His name is Brad Wickham. He's 65. He's been doing this for 10 years. I'm standing in the tough shed that holds the sarcophagus that holds Bredo Mostel, the frozen dead guy. Every two weeks, I have to go down to Denver to a distributor and pick up the dry ice. And it's usually 900 to 1,200 pounds. And that's all year long. I'm wired money from Norway by his grandson, Trigva, to maintain the ice. And that's what I do every two weeks. It comes like clockwork. You were on a video call with Brad while he was in that shed. What, what did you see, Michelle? I mean, it's a room with what looked like wood walls. The thing I really noticed is there's a little Norwegian flag hanging from, I guess, the ceiling. Uh (laughs) And, you know, I felt like I had to ask Brad whether he talks to Bredo when they're in the shed. Uh, Yeah, I always try to say hi. And uh, at night, I definitely don't want to talk to him. You know, it's dark and I might have a little battery operated lamp and I'm, you know, wind's blowing. And I've seen enough movies that I just like to talk uh, maybe in that situation, but I always say hello when I open the door, just in case. Oh, 10 years is a long time to be doing this. How come Brad's still at it? He'd be more than happy to hand this off. It's a lot of physical work, but it's really hard to find somebody who like wants to take on this kind of a chore every mm-hmm. couple of weeks. He calls it a labor of love. Well, we'll talk about the festival now that came out of all of this, originally in Netherlands. Exactly. I even went up there one year. The highlights, such as they were, were a coffin race and a hearse parade. And so with the coffin race, teams got these wooden boxes and they kind of grabbed on like pallbearers and then raced around a track. Of course, everybody had to be like in these macabre costumes <laughs> and the hearses were all decorated up. It, it was quite the scene. Yeah. And town got crowded. I looked at my souvenir beer glass. It was 2010 when I was up there. Yeah. I'm going to guess we walked somewhere close to a mile from our parking on the side of the road. Into the town. icy road into town. Oh. Last year, after a hiatus for the pandemic, they started the festival again, 22,000 people. But they are moving the festival. Right. I think partly because the leaders in Netherlands got kind of fed up and partly because the costs were rising a lot. And so the decision was Estes Park. Estes Park, home of the Stanley Hotel. Yep. No coincidence. A lot of people think it's haunted. It was the inspiration for Stephen King's novel, The Shining, and for the movie. Here's Johnny! (laughs) Which was actually filmed elsewhere. True. Now, John Cullen, the owner, really thinks there are some great connections there between the The, hotel, the the movie, movie. and the frozen dead dead guy. guy. 
what was the last scene of The Shining. It was a frozen dead guy in the maze in front of the hotel. And so all these different stories have somehow collided with my Norwegian friend in Oslo and uh, his grandfather uh, up in uh, Netherlands. There's a historic ice house on the Stanley property. Colin's talking with a nonprofit that specializes in cryonics about moving the body there, and they would maintain it under superior circumstances to the dry ice. They'd also create a museum there that would kind of educate people about cryonics. But even Colin admits this whole thing is pretty weird. This whole thing started over a couple of beers. Uh, one of my good friends from Netherlands was in town, and he said, I'm sorry you missed the Frozen Dead Guy Festival last year, Cullen. And I happened to drive through there and saw the uh, the wreckage of what that festival did to the town. And uh, I looked down at my beer, and I go, huh. And he looks at me and goes, oh, bloody hell. Uh, what are you thinking? I, I've seen that look on your face before, Colin. And I go, let's buy the Frozen Dead Guy Festival and move Brito, the guy, into the ice house. Is there confidence that storing the body near this hotel in Estes Park is legal? <laughs> well, John Collins says he believes the zoning that covers the Stanley would actually allow for this. It's fairly broad, to put it mildly. But he says he will work with the city, with the county, with whatever regulators are out there. Now, in Nederland, when this was established, when the body went up there, there was a whole lot of controversy. So I think we'll see how this plays out. What's the festival going to be like this year? And it is taking place in Estes Park, even though the body remains in Nederland. Exactly. It starts this Friday with an icebreaker event. <laughs> oh, God. Sorry. Yeah. Um, there's hearses, there will be coffins, and there will be a whole lot of bands. And this is something where you pay an entry fee. Michelle, thanks so much for this. Well, I don't have words. Thanks for the story. Thanks, Ryan. But before we go, I want yeah. to come back to what is kind of a poignant aspect of this whole story. Okay. And that's Brad Wickham, who I, you know, I noted calls this a labor of love. And he says when it's over, he's going to be a little sad. When I came to Netherlands, I got this job purely as a gig, a way to make gas money as I tried to establish myself. So it built up to being like, after a while, you feel like a part of the family to the point where I'm almost going to probably have, you know, some stages of grief once this is all over, possibly. That story from my colleague Michelle B. Fulcher on the guy they're referring to with Frozen Dead Guy Days. The festival moves to the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park this weekend. The body may follow someday. That segment is based on a question we got through Colorado Wonders from listener Amy Resnick. If there's something in our extraordinary state you wonder about, let us know at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. And that is our show for today, with thanks to a team that I wish could live forever. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. This is CPR News and KRCC.